0: Good morning, Your Honors. Jim Workman is a decorated veteran of the United States Army who served multiple tours of duty and suffered a traumatic brain injury. And as a result of his service-related injuries, he has experienced PTSD, seizures, depression, anxiety. His mental disability manifested in several symptoms or challenges that are documented throughout the Social Security Administration file, which was trial exhibit one. And those symptoms and challenges include Things relevant to this appeal, including poor memory and concentration, slowed thinking, difficulty understanding written instructions and following those instructions, difficulty with reading comprehension. So you're not
1: contending that he was sufficiently handicapped that he couldn't even do the business he was performing, he was doing high vac That's that's uh, great. running a high-vac business, and you're saying we're, these we're, conditions were so severe he couldn't even read a government notice about whether he was working or not or understand the, the intent of a question into whether or not he was employed.
0: There, there is not a, a contention that he was not doing any particular activity related to the HVAC business on the context of uh, because of his mental there's not a, a dispute in this record as to what he was doing or not doing, I, but I think, Your Honor, it is a relevant context uh, for the court to consider when it comes to an issue of his understanding of the government, Social Security forms, concepts, rules, and regulations, uh, what background he but had at the simple time. But
1: questions like, are you working? Correct. Are, are you receiving income? <clears throat> You're saying that his... He had medical conditions that made it uh, improbable or impossible for him to understand that income, uh, other than the disability income he was receiving, needed to be disclosed.
0: I think the, the trial evidence showed that he conveyed that his understanding, and this is how the district court at the sentencing conveyed it, was his lay understanding was that the concept of work and substantial gainful activity were essentially the same and that he understood when asked, are you working, that was, are you working to that level that it would affect your benefits? Uh, and so that may be confusion. And I'm not... Ultimately, this court doesn't have to evaluate whether that misunderstanding or confusion
1: was what reasonable. What was his understanding of the limit that the regulation posed?
0: Uh, as he described it in the interview that was put in by the government's evidence was that he was told... I think roughly $1,000 per month, which was the substantial gainful activity in, in the range of that, uh, the limit, which is, I think, Defense Exhibit 1 lays out exactly what these substantial gainful activity limits on a monthly basis were. And well, is
1: there any factual dispute as to um, that the, the ultimate amounts that were being uh, acquired and, and obtained through the business over the course of these years exceeded that?
0: Yes, there is, Your Honor. Uh, particularly as to whether it would be countable to him. So if you, Exhibit 1 lays out the business's returns, but that doesn't even necessarily equate to what Mr. Work, what would be attributed to Mr. Workman. Uh, his claim consistent throughout was that, uh, and, and he, what he expressed and was described as his lay understanding, was I didn't believe I had to report this. I didn't understand that until it reached a limit. And once we reached that limit in 2015, uh, he did report it. Uh, and there, there is uh, evidence that that so he acted consistent with his lay understanding. There are parts of this trial record, your honor, that and the briefing in this case that resemble an administrative appeal from a denial of benefits. Now, you,
2: you just referenced 2015. He understood. So you, are you are you now addressing the uh, uh, the, re- the <clears throat> retribution forfeiture issue? Or are uh, we I, still, are we still talking about the, whether he? He deserved to, not to be convicted. I, I, was still, evidence. I was still discussing the sufficiency issue, but well, if he if he if he acknowledged, and I gather there was a March two thousand and sixteen call. <clears throat> excuse me, where he made what looked to me like a significant admission, and doesn't that why doesn't that end the sufficiency issue?
0: That call. Dis- describes what was reported at that time in terms of uh, his activity. There's also evidence that indicates uh, that there was a report made in uh, going back to October of 2015 when he would have become ineligible. And that uh, came from uh, the, the report in the Social Security Administration's administrative calculation. It's uh, a defense exhibit 48 in the in the trial record, where they calculated an overpayment of benefits starting in October two thousand and fifteen, and there's no explanation how the, that October two thousand and fifteen date came about, other than a report from Mr. Wardle. Okay, but I
2: just focused on the call. Yes, and I thought the call he confirmed much of what the, the maybe not in maybe not quantifiably. And and, and
0: we're not claiming that in two thousand and sixteen. He was reaching an activity, and he did report that, which wouldn 't make him guilty of fraud. The issue with the okay, call why what,
2: not why not
0: well, because at that time he was reporting uh, him his activity in order to with the understanding his benefits would be removed now what what is controversial about that call is whether he there was in fact any statement going back all the way to February of two thousand
2: and nine I understand that, but at, at what point Can the jury begin, and at what date does the jury legitimately infer fraud?
0: Well, we don't think they do in this case because, in fact, his report was consistent with his lay understanding, and this gets back to the
2: the question. The jury got the lay understanding, you know, that was argued.
0: Well, we, we understand that that was an issue, but it was nonetheless the district court's we submit the duty based on this evidence to direct uh, a verdict or enter a judgment of acquittal based on the evidence presented here. The government was
2: not. Was that argued at the instruction conference? It seems to me we're I... <laughs> the second time this morning. We're arguing at the appellate level things that, that are supposed to be hammered out at trial.
0: Your Honor, I believe the motion for judgment of acquittal was filed and that the trial counsel, and I can get the page if I, when I sit down, but that is uh, incorporated the arguments in support of the motion for judgment of acquittal at the directed verdict, or at the jury instruction stage. So, uh,
2: and, But there's no instruction error raised on appeal.
0: That's true. We've we not challenged the instructional issue, but nonetheless, even without instructional error, there can be error from the district court in not granting a judgment of acquittal.
2: Uh, what, what case says that? Well, we're not challenged. what A-circuit case says that. Well, we're challenging. If, if, ch- if a, a, a pre-instruction pre acquittal motion is denied and the case is then submitted to the jury, the appellate court leaps back to that pre-jury pre ruling. Well, perhaps
0: I, I misphrased. We're not challenging the wording of any of the instructions. We have challenged the submission of the case and the denial of the post-trial uh, motion along the similar lines for a judgment of acquittal. So the sufficiency okay, challenge. best
2: a Circuit case? I've I looked at this for a while.
0: I, I believe I, I'm not certain of one as uh, if I understand the context, but I think on the record here, the sufficiency challenge was preserved at each stage, and that is the core issue that is the first issue for Mr. Workman in this appeal. And In an administrative dispute, the Social Security Administration can get a long way by saying that someone does not understand the agency's rules. They don't have to prove that. Here, in a criminal case, this is important to remember, a criminal case, the charges of fraud, they have to show that Mr. Workman truly understood the program that he was essentially defrauding. We encourage the court, if you haven't read, reviewed the audio or the transcript of the interview of Mr. Workman, is when well, you read.
2: I was going to add, the government argues that your argument, that, that it need not prove the defendant understood the rules, right. which is kind of your core sufficiency argument. What case, what case do you have that establishes the government's wrong? I, I don't think from a point
0: of first principles, that you can establish intent to defraud a government
2: program. So you don't have a you don't have the, a case. And I think social I mean, this is so every every criminal trial is distinct in the Social Security Administration, SSA fraud is not a you know a routine thing. I
0: think the the most thoughtful explanation of this comes from the Phillips case cited in it's I believe a Fifth Circuit case describing exactly what is necessary for fraudulent intent when it comes if somebody mistakenly misunderstands the government, uh, what is required of them in order to obtain benefits, that's not fraud. Uh, if they have a misunderstanding of the rules or of what the form is asking of them, that's not fraud. Even if that misunderstanding is careless, so even... the
1: ultimate question of whether there was understanding or, or the absence of it, was that the jury's decision? The jury was given the opportunity
0: to decide that issue. But nonetheless, this court has an obligation, even when it it gives deference to jury verdicts. That does not dilute the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, nor this court's repeated statements that it, or this court's statements and other opinions, that it must grant a judgment of acquittal when the inferences are equally strong in favor of uh, innocence or
2: guilt. So why doesn't the March 16 phone call Establish a basis for the jury to decide that that it rejects. I didn't understand the rules. Well, it
0: it shows a consistent under. It, it is equally supportive of his understanding, except for the point. The only piece of it that is not is his claim that the government twists that or says that that conversation means that he was working twenty hours a week, 50, earning fifty thousand dollars a year. For us,
2: could a reasonable jury so make that inference? Right, and. Given the of course, rec- the government says yes.
0: Given the bank records that clearly show that report could not have possibly been going, going the, back forget to forget February Forget the 15 report.
2: Did the admissions that he made in response to that report it, establish that he understood the rules, it, well, though, or had a, had a sufficient understanding of the rules to know that the question "Are you working?" Uh, isn't, isn't doesn't turn on a thousand dollars a month. Well, Unless he can identify the unnamed agent who supposedly told him that in a phone call. The, the time
0: at which he makes that statement in March of 16, though, he is earning an amount and therefore is working according to his understanding. And so it isn't a fraudulent admission of any fraud. It's equally uh, supportive of his own lay misunderstanding. You know,
2: you have the whole basis of he and his wife farming this Company, just before or just after, he starts getting benefits. In order for his continuing to work to be camouflaged under an LLC uh, in which his wife has a, a, a seemingly superior role, it, I mean, the juries juries aren't that dumb.
0: It was there was a two year gap between the the form the fictitious name. Uh, registration and when he began receiving benefits and even longer uh, before
2: Aren't I right you about look, the timing of benefits and the formation the, the, the of the company The
0: benefits began uh, in July of 20, 2007 the fictitious name registration was in July of 2009 uh, and the application for benefits months after uh, 2007 So he's September getting better
2: after two years and, right. But but now he's he, and he's getting these he's getting these uh, benefits not only for himself but for what wound up being four children as I understand ultimately. dependent dependent benefits ultimately and not in, in two thousand nine but right. by two thousand fourteen yeah. and, and so and, now I, well you know I the best of both worlds would be to get both the, so how can we do that the, well the, the,
0: the, to correct one thing the, the last three children weren't added until twenty sixteen all right uh, but. Counsel, you're
1: well within your rebuttal time. You can continue if you like, or you can. No, I I would
0: like to reserve some for rebuttal.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Lance.
3: May please the court, Lee Farmakitis for the United States.
2: I want to counsel. Let me. I I know you're going to. I know you want to start where the argument is, but let me just warn you that based on your brief, I am a, have a strong inclination to reverse on restitution and forfeiture. So maybe you want to get there at some point.
3: Um, I can start with the monetary penalties I if that's care. where...
2: No, no, I'm not. I don't want to control any. I'm just uh, giving
3: you a warning. Let me spend just a moment on the sufficiency argument, because I do want to pick up on one very strong point made by the court, which is the late-in-the-period evidence of fraudulent intent. There's no dispute here that the jury was properly instructed. The government had the burden to show that Mr. Workman had the requisite intent under the statutes of conviction. That's exactly what the government's evidence showed in this case. The government showed that over a period of seven years, through a pattern of affirmative misrepresentations and omissions, Mr. Workman obtained benefits intended for individuals who cannot work while he owned and operated. An HVAC business. Mr. Workman obtained um, over or close to $170,000 in benefits. Um, Among the most powerful pieces of the government's evidence of fraudulent intent was Mr. Workman's continued acceptance and indeed application for further benefits in January of 2016, where this court, at a time when this court has noted, there's no question that Mr. Workman understood his work activity exceeded SSA's thresholds. In addition to that evidence, there's um, there's evidence of Mr. Workman's repeated lies about his work activity. Um, People don't lie about benefits they understand or reasonably believe they're entitled to. His false exculpatory statements, when confronted with those lies, which appellant's counsel characterizes as his lay understanding, those are. That's. Um,
1: what statements do you point to that you characterize as knowingly false? Um,
3: what do you, um, Are you working now? No. Uh, what do you do? How do you spend your time? Um, doing chores around the house, watching television. Um, when he spoke to a psychologist in 2010, so this is over a year after he started the business, he told the psychologist, I hope to one day start an HVAC business so that I can get off benefits, evincing his understanding that work meant he would not be entitled to benefits. Starting that business, his under, that, um, that statement showed his understanding. Um, There's also evidence that SSA notified Mr. Workman in 2010 that his benefits would be terminated if he didn't return a form um, that detailed his work activity. In response, that's when Mr. Workman provided the form that said, no, I'm not working and my daily activities consist of chores around the house. All of that was powerful evidence of Mr. Workman's fraudulent intent. That's exactly the type of evidence that this court's case law says is sufficient to prove fraudulent intent, the jury, as this court pointed out, the jury considered Mr. Workman's self-serving out-of-court statements and concluded they were not credible because of the ample evidence that supported a finding of fraudulent intent. The jury appears to have reasonably concluded, among other things, that Mr. Workman well understood what it meant to work and that his business constituted work in the common understanding of that term, and that the phone calls he alleged to have occurred never happened. There's no basis to set aside the jury's determination um, as to the sufficiency of the evidence. I'll I'll turn now to the monetary penalties. Um, Once again, the arguments um, in the appellant's brief mischaracterize the factual record. My
2: main problem is you spend... Pages and pages arguing about how complex the question of, of uh, SGA is. And then when we get to the monetary penalties, you just say, well, we, we, we titled it up 50000 a year from 2009 forward, and, and he owes the whole thing. Uh, uh, I, I, don't, I, I think a deep dive into precisely what you presented is absolutely essential here.
3: Okay, and so I'd like to review some of the evidence that was presented at trial, and this is in the trial record, and we can walk through it. Um, The and I want to just
2: oh oh, well, I I haven't read your declaration, but it seems to me as described in the brief, it's very general.
3: Well, basically saying
2: we got a seven-year pattern, we get the whole thing back.
3: So, so Judge Loken, I'd like to talk about this in in the detail it deserves because I agree. there's a exhibit that details the um, SSA's restitution calculation. Um, That exhibit walks through why the trial work period started in February. What's exhibit number? I wanted to pull up the pages so I get all the exhibit numbers right, if you just give me one moment. Okay, so the, the I, I believe it's exhibit twenty government's exhibit twenty-six is the is the lost determination. But the explanation of that letter is in the record in a couple places. So if you look at the testimony of Tuan Phan, he explains. restitution calculation, but the best explanation of the restitution calculation is actually the transcript of the interview of Mr. Workman from 2017. In that interview, Mr. Fawn, who testified at trial, and Special Agent McKimmons, who also testified at trial, explain the basis for that letter, and they explain it to Mr. Workman, too. Um, And what the agents say is that the SSA... Looked at Mr. Workman's case just like they look at any other case. The first thing they looked at was the application of the trial work period. The trial work period they found began in February of two thousand nine, and that was based on the information Mr. Workman provided in the phone call to Social Security in March of twenty sixteen. Does it, but he got <coughs> the,
2: is there a recalculation you of all the, the with all the SGA complexities? And the fact that he's getting benefits on behalf of children as well as others. And how much were and that his earnings attributable to him over time were not identical always. They weren't always fifty thousand a year. Yes, and and I'll and I'll
3: get there. The first step is the trial work period, which is an hours-based test. So it's not until the trial work period is exhausted that we get to the SGA analysis. And that's all in the transcript and the sites are in the brief on pages of the of the appellee's brief, if you look at pages 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. All the sites are there, but I'll walk the court through what the testimony was and about what SSA did. So the first uh, is that... We can't uh, do
2: it this morning, but... but right, but, but, so, but in summary... Ro- give me the roadmap.
3: Okay, so first is the trial work period. It starts in February of 2009. 20 hours of week that Mr the 20 hours of work per week that Mr Workman reported that satisfies the trial work period that's 9 months so that goes from February until October of 2009 once the trial work period ends that's when the agency looks at the SGA analysis the substantial gainful activity so as of November of 2010 the question is whether Mr Workman's activity is SGA Now, there's um, the agency is very clear. They applied. It's there are three tests to make that determination. The test they applied is the comparability analysis. It has nothing to do with whether Mr. Workman made fifty thousand dollars in two thousand and sixteen, going all the way back. That's not how comparability works. Comparability looks at whether. People who run successful HVAC businesses in the community are engaged in substantial, substantial gainful employment. Let me employment. ask you this:
2: What percentage of the total benefits received during the period that was alleged fro- to be fraudulent are recovered in the in the loss analysis?
3: So it's, the restitution. Your brief
2: makes it sound like it's a hundred percent.
3: It's it's the it's the benefits Mr. Workman received as of february twenty ten forward. That's the loss calculation because Mr. Workman was engaged in substantial gainful activity under agency policy as of november twenty ten. The agency then gave him three months under its extended period of eligibility where they gave him three additional months of benefits and his the first payment that the that this loss calculation determined he wasn't entitled to under its regulations, was February of 2010. It was not based on his countable income. I think that the appellant has made some arguments that SSA applied the wrong test. I'll respond to the letter he put in yesterday with an explanation, as to my understanding, as, as to why that's the agency applied its three tests. Counsel, what, what?
1: Regulatory language should we look to provisions in code or statute, um, and what uh, case authority do we look to that shows us what the process of calculation of restitution in this in a case like this should look like?
3: I wanna I wanna talk first about the case law because the, I can give you the regulatory sites. They were exhibits at trial. I think Exhibit Twenty Eight is the is one of them. Um, and and um, it, it is laid out in the briefs what SSA did, but I want to talk about the case law because I want to talk about what is the government required to prove under the MVRA? That's the issue here. Under the MVRA, the government has to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, the restitution, and it needs to be a reasonable restitution calculation. The, the,
1: the inter, intersection of the MVRA and the Social Security Regulations in terms of what has the government actually lost? Not in a situation like this. It's not like the fraud cases where there's just a an, an, uh, complete vagueness of who lost what and how much. There were specific amounts of money paid to specific individuals for specific periods of time. That's right. That you can start with to determine then what of that amount was unlawfully obtained.
3: Right. And that's what the government's done. And I think that's where the case law comes into play is what does the, What should the court be doing in a case like this where you have a complicated regulatory backdrop, SSA makes a determination, what does the court look at, what's reasonable to do? And I think the Shoal case is a great case to look at. That's the Fourth Circuit case we we cited.
2: You better have an A-Circuit case because in my experience with loss calculations and forfeitures, et cetera... Other circuits, more often than
3: not, get it wrong to
2: the government's benefit.
3: Okay. So I think you can look at the Carey case and the Asamani case um, out of the Eighth Circuit. They don't address the SSA context, but I'll tell you why I think they're particularly relevant here. Um, I think the Anderson case out of the Tenth Circuit is Wait, another... I don't,
2: I don't see Carey in your case list. Uh,
3: it's in our brief...
2: Oh, there it is. It's with a K. Okay.
3: I'm sorry. It's with a K. Um, SSA made its regulatory determination based on the information Mr. Workman provided. Workman said he started working in February of 2009. He said he was the owner-operator of an HVAC business. He said he was working 20 hours a week. That's what made SSA determine he wasn't eligible to get benefits as of February 2010. Now, the cases where the court has said, SSA, what you did is not sufficient. That's the Anderson case that the appellant cites. That's a case totally unlike the facts here. That's the that's, t- c- that's
2: 10th Circuit, right? I, where they I said thought you gave me two Circuit.
3: I don't have the two Circuit cases are not in the SSA context. But I'll tell you why I think they're really don't give well. give me the me.
2: second one again.
3: Carrie yeah. and Os- I and Asimani is a forfeiture case. It might not be cited in our brief. I'm sorry if it's not. Um, but the concept there is...
2: Aponte, pon- you mean? Uh,
3: uh, I might not have cited the Asamani case, which is a forfeiture case from the Eighth Circuit uh, last year, 2021. Um,
2: uh, I, I don't... It's, I think it might not
3: be in the brief, Judge Loken, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I want to say why... Put, would you put a 28J in with it? Please. Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I think the reason they're particularly relevant here is if Mr. Rookman believed that the factual findings on which the restitution order and calculation was wrong. For example, I wasn't working twenty hours a week. He's never provided any information to show, here's the here's how it here's why I was only working five. I wasn't going out on HVAC calls. He's never provided that kind of evidence. And that's what Kerry and Asamani say. If he wants to rely on the legitimacy or some argument that he was entitled to these payments for some period of time, then it's up to the, the district court's determination, SSA's determination, is perfectly reasonable. It's the, it's, these are difficult to calculate fraud circumstances. What the government has done satisfies its burden. Um, The other thing I want to cite on the countable income issue is even if that test were to apply, I want to point the court to the instances in the record that show that Mr. Workman withdrew cash from his business checking account. This is reflected in the trial transcript at 235. There's an exhibit showing cash withdrawals. That he made from that business account from 2009, 2010. I think in 2010 the number was seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. That's there's um, testimony in the trial transcript that under SSA guidelines that counts as income. Um, I think it's important for the court to to focus on those facts as well. I see my time is up. Um, thank you, and we ask that the um, that the court affirm. Thank you, Council.
1: Mr. Lance, your rebuttal. Thank you, thank you Your Honor. <clears throat> your Honor, in the
0: honors and the brief uh, rebuttal, I will focus first on the restitution piece because I did not get there earlier. Uh, the restitution judgment here should not stand on the assumption that Jim Workman worked for six to seven years, 20 hours every week, and earned $50,000 salary every year because that's plainly a false. A false statement given other evidence in this record and the government presented no evidence to show...
2: I, I thought the gov- I thought the argument was they didn't rely on that report that said 50000 a year, which is that, never really corroborated.
0: W- where it's twisted is they're saying we didn't rely on the dollar amount, but they want to still rely on the 20 hours per week that's contained in the same report. So they want to say... Half of that's a mistake, but the other half we want to keep for our restitution judgment. Uh, We don't think any of it particularly is supported given no one testified to that. We don't even know who took that note down, and it's plainly, verifiably false given the bank account records that show in the entire year they had $28,000 in deposits. Well,
2: 20 hours a week may not, if there are also cash withdrawals, all, that's, all that the government needs to prove is it went over SGA, right? The,
0: the cash withdrawals, first of all, there's no evidence to indicate those weren't for business expenses, and the government's witnesses acknowledged they could be, and they wouldn't qualify. And
2: even in the years... Well, but the business the business is is part of the fraud.
0: Not, the, the, the cash withdraw issue, though, there were not cash withdrawals in the year. To go to the question about does the March 2016 report allow them to cover and sweep through this broad, sweeping restitution judgment, I don't think it it supports it. Uh, I see my time is up. Thank you, Your Honors. We respectfully request uh, reversal of the conviction on the sufficiency of the evidence and, absent that, uh, vacating the restitution award. Thank you. And forfeiture award.
1: Thank you, Mr. Lance. Thank you also, Mr. Farmacitus. We We appreciate your argument to the court this morning and the briefing that's been submitted, and we'll take the case under advisement.